1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast, and I'm pleased to have Jerry Gonzalez with me to discuss his book In Search of the Mexican Beverly Hills, Latino Suburbanization in Post-War Los Angeles, published by Rutgers University Press in 2018. Dr. Jerry Gonzalez is Associate Professor of History at the University of Texas at San Antonio, where he teaches courses in Chicano and Latino history, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, and metropolitan history. He is also the co-coordinator of the Mellon Humanities Pathways Program at UT San Antonio, which prepares the next generation of scholars of color to enter doctoral study. His research centers on the historical relationship between Latino identities and metropolitan places, specifically looking at suburbs as understudied sites for ethnic Mexican life, culture, and political action. Hello, Jerry, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hey, DJ. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I was wondering if you could uh, get us started today by just taking a few minutes and uh, share with us a little bit about your personal and professional background.
0: Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm from Southern California originally. I was uh, born in Montebello, California, which is a suburb east of East LA. So you'll see a theme here. Um. Grew up in La Habra, California, in Northern Orange uh, County—a place that I'm—I'm sure you're familiar Mm -hmm. Uh, with—and stretching way back, uh, my family on my mother's side uh, migrated to Southern California in 1914 uh, during the middle of the Revolution. Uh, Sort of lived the whole, uh, I guess, textbook uh, Chicano family history. ended up in Oxnard, uh, picking sugar beets and eventually made their way to Lincoln Heights. Um, from Lincoln Heights, uh, eventually my grandmother, uh, uh, got married, uh, moved to Pico Rivera, um, lived in Los Nietos and unincorporated Whittier for a little while. And then, um, back to Pico Rivera. So, uh, from there, uh, My parents actually met in Pico Rivera at at El Rancho High School. Uh, My father went off to Vietnam. My mother stuck around when he returned from the war. Uh, They got married, uh, rented a house out there in Pico for a little while, and then eventually moved to La Habra, where I was raised. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit about my my family background. Uh, As you can see, kind of... Spanning the 20th century and spanning the the almost the whole terrain of Southern California,
1: right. Tell us a little bit about uh, so how did you eventually uh, decide to choose the you know the historical profession and you know become a professor?
0: Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think initially I kind of stumbled into it <laughs> uh, right out of high school. I wasn't I wasn't the most stellar uh, student. Um, but I always had an aptitude for history, social stu- uh, social studies, uh, those materials. Um, it was at really at Fullerton Community College where I started uh, my undergrad, uh, mm-hmm. where I took a class with Jerry Padilla in ethnic studies. And I think that was the first um, real introduction to um, to Latino history, uh, to the history of people of color, to the history of marginalized folks in, in the United States. And that kind of got me flowing, if you will. Um, it raised a lot of questions about um, where uh, my family was in that past and and where my community broadly defined was in that past, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And <clears throat> you know, when I transferred to Cal State Fullerton, um, I started taking courses with uh, Larry DeGraff, who, um, you know, was one of the first historians to really focus on black Los Angeles. And Mm -hmm. he uh, offered me an opportunity to begin uh, a research project um, where I served as an RA. um, Going into the archives with him, um, sort of digging out materials around race and racialization in Los Angeles city politics. And this was really kind of a, a revolutionary experience for me because I was looking at stuff firsthand, uh, uh-huh. things that um, you know that I felt that I'd missed in in my K through twelve education to be sure, and and things that kind of confirmed what I was learning already in ethnic studies, uh, but but really like the material. Uh, uh-huh. So it 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 provoked. Um, um, a more intense uh, drive, if you will, to, to seek out this history, to, to do the primary um, research. And, and there I met uh, Clark Davis, who, uh, Clark introduced me to sort of the canon of LA studies, um, in which case I ran across, um, I was introduced to, to George's book, Becoming Mexican American. Um, he was given a talk at Cal State Fullerton and I made a point to you know, to to go to that talk, and uh, I went up to speak with him afterwards, and he agreed to to meet with me on campus at USC to discuss the doctoral program. Um, and really, it was this uh, you know George's uh, you know sort of willingness to to meet with me and, and talk with me and share his work and. Um, you know, sort of outlined the program that, um, you know, really sold me on, on, you know, pursuing doctoral study and particularly working with him as a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gave me the opportunity to do this. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was something to me that always stood out, uh, about, about George and his mentorship. Right. Right.
1: And how about the project itself? This, um, you know, this book, it, uh, was uh, part of your dissertation work. Is that right? And so how did you, uh, what, what led you along the the path to decide, Hey, let's write a history of, you know, Mexican Americans, you know, moving to the suburbs in, in greater East, uh, you know, East Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that also kind of happened over time. Um, <clears throat> so really it was in, uh, in George's LA, um, LA readings course uh, that I was introduced to Matt Garcia's book A World of Its Own, mm-hmm. and um, I think that was that was the one book in particular that really, really sort of directed me towards the suburbs. I think at that point I was still, um, you know, sort of playing around with um, you know sort of smaller community studies. So I was I was doing some work on Lincoln Heights. Um, really trying to figure out how East LA was going to figure into a, a dissertation topic. Right. And, um, and Matt's book for me, just sort of blew open the doors. I said, I don't have to stay in East LA. I could actually move beyond it, you know? Right. right. Um, it made a lot of sense to me just given the family history that I, I outlined at the outset that, um, you know, my family history didn't even, uh, wasn't even confined to the boundaries of East LA. Right. And so it started, really got me thinking about the broader metropolitan landscape uh, with respect to Mexican-American life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was also uh, fortunate fortunate to be at USC. The time that I was, there was uh, a number of great scholars coming in. Um, you know, during my time there, the, the history department hired Bill Deverell. And, um, you know, his work uh, on LA is is you know sort of canon and he influenced uh, my work in a lot of ways as well around um, you know pursuing colonias uh, as a starting point for suburbs. And, right. And and uh, you know certainly his his chapter on Simon's brickyard in um, in his book Whitewashed Adobe was was one that um, really uh, helped me shape uh, the origins of 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 my book. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, working with those folks, but then also working with my, my graduate um, colleagues, my graduate school colleagues, uh, it was a really dynamic group of folks there at the time, um, many of whom were doing work on, on LA or some aspect of LA. And so we had a, a really great synergy, um, intellectual synergy around uh, the, the, the site of LA, but the kinds of questions that we were raising around race and space and, and um, History and culture, and and so it was just a really great um, uh, moment in in my academic career to to be there at the time that I was.
1: Right, definitely. Well, and when you think about L.A. and, and perhaps at that time when, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're reading, you know, about Los Angeles, uh, they're outside of Matt's book. I mean, there really wasn't much. Right. And, and even I think up till, you know, even your book there, there hasn't been many, uh, if you will, you know, suburban histories, you know, that particularly focus on. Uh, ethnic Mexicans or Mexican-Americans. And in your introduction, uh, you actually make the statement that, you know, the issue or the, the, you know, the experience of Mexican-American suburban homeownership disrupts uh, that standard narrative, or as you put here, romanticized notions of post-war America. Uh, can you explain a bit more about that? How, how is that this story in particular, focusing on ethnic Mexicans and Mexican-Americans moving to the suburbs, how does that change what we you know, think we knew about that post-war era of American history? Uh, sure. Um, and
0: I, I think you laid it out uh, pretty well. I mean, a lot of the scholarship at the time was kind of uh, biting around the edges. I think you, in, in Chicano history, um, certainly Gil Gonzalez's book on, um, on the colonias in Orange County, um, Matt's book on Pomona, and um, Jose Alamillo's book on... Um, Riverside, um, to me, I think did really important work to to getting us to the next step of the conversation, which was, you know, those spaces in between, sort of the far flung agricultural colonias and and East LA, right? That there was this whole uh, broad geography that um, sort of escaped the purview of, of Chicano scholars. At the same time, that um, you know suburban historians, really the new suburban historians, right, were, um, you know, really changing the conversation around those suburbs, right, that, um, you know, Sam Bass Warner's conceptions of the the streetcar suburb or the, you know, the sort of um, wealthy, um, you know, enclave were, weren't really the, didn't equal the, 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 the universal narrative of suburbanization. So again, uh, I think Nicolaide's work and Andy Weiss's work uh, really helped me to see that, not only in scholarly ways, but sort of in the, the popular uh, mythology that suburbs are far more diverse than they had been um, sort of portrayed in, in a number of different platforms. And so that that kind of helped me to 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 think about the ways that places like Pico Rivera or El Monte would 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 figure or not figure in to the suburban sort of narrative, right? The canon of suburban studies. Um, and um, <clears throat> I think I think when I set out to do the research, I really started to focus on um, these local places. I'd go to the to the local libraries and and check out sort of the, the booster literature that they had from, from the 1950s and 60s and, you know, try to understand the ways that they packaged that mythology and and, and those notions of the sort of ideal place. Um, well, at the same time, you know, using oral histories and and digging through census records and, and through um, uh, newspaper accounts, etc., you know the, the 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 presence of ethnic Mexicans and the activities of, of ethnic Mexicans in these places that didn't quite jive with um, you know all the ideas that we held about suburbs and so this was a, a kind of really uh, important um, merger of of scholarly fields suburbs and 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 chicano history particularly chicano urban history um, and you know, joining up with, you know, the things that I had experienced in life, right? That, you know, I, I was traversing, you know, all these all these places um, almost on a daily basis as I drove back and forth between campus and, and my house back in Bahabra. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Right. And it, for me, it seems to, the book itself, you know, it, it does two, I think, really uh, a number of neat things. And the first thing that we're, we're talking about right here is the, you know, the disruption of that, standard narrative that whether you've you've gone and studied right uh metropolitan or urban history suburban history all these different names you know in college or not people are still really familiar uh, with the major tropes and ideas that that you know of post-war america right that the suburbs are you know uh built in the post-war era this it's this you know expansive uh, economic right, era where wealth is being generated through homeownership and that typically people of color are locked out of that, right? It's this this notion develops of, right, uh, you know, chocolate, so-called chocolate, uh, you know, cities and, you know, vanilla suburbs, right, driven by white flight, white people uh, fleeing urban areas to the suburbs, right? That's kind of the main idea I think that a lot of people get um, that have read maybe a little bit about urban history. Um, It's that dichotomy, right? You have you know, people of color stuck in, you know, disadvantaged places and cities, and you have more affluent middle-class whites that have fled to the suburbs for a number of reasons. Part of it's racism, uh, economic opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But as you just mentioned, you know, the, uh, you know, your own, not only your own lived experience, but also this scholarship of uh, Chicano historians and Latino historians talking about Southern California starts to really broaden that. And I think that your work takes this quite a step further, right? Because it focuses particularly, you know, particularly on that aspect of Mexican Americans that, um, you know, actually make that journey to the suburbs, right? And how different that was, right? Uh, for, you know, Anglos and whites, um, you know, uh, in, and, and, and again, primarily in disrupting that major narrative and that dichotomy, or uh, it's more of a paradigm, right? That, uh, whites mm-hmm. were kind of the exclusive, um, you know, occupants, right, of the suburbs.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I think you laid it out beautifully. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I also uh, want to add to that that I think looking at the suburbs helps helps us complicate even that paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. That um, in you know, in places like Pomona, for example, um, you know, Genevieve Carpio could tell you. Uh, you know, these places were just as highly segregated as, you know, uh, Central Avenue or or East Los Angeles. Right? right. And, you know, thinking about about that kind of um, structural inequality across a broader landscape uh, really helps us appreciate, um, you know, just just how difficult uh, people's lives were made by. Uh, discrimination if not you know outright lethal mm-hmm. right if you're if you're crossing particular boundaries in in some of these smaller places and you know so i think there's a reason why that part of the paradigm um you know is there it, it holds up because it, it's reality it was the reality mm-hmm. it's factual
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but i think that that we lost uh, sort of this other um sort of silent history of of uh, inclusion right <laughs> that um you know that, that could really help us understand uh some of the internal politics of the of the community uh around some of the flashpoints of the 50s or the 60s right mm-hmm. um and you know i think part of part of what my book uh does is, is not so much upend that paradigm as as much as sort of Nuance it or complicate exactly to a certain degree. Uh, that you know that that there was a, a particular um, sort of ideal that many of these Mexican Americans had um, in their minds because they had lived in the United States for so long, right? Because at this point they're you know by the 1950s they're second or even third generation, um, you know Mexican Americans, and and they have a, a certain set of ideals that are. Were shaped by life in the United States, right? Um, to be bound by uh, sort of the racial boundaries of LA was um, really a denial of their personhood, a denial of their of their place in a society that, that they and their their families had literally shaped. So, <clears throat> um, you know, I felt that you know the activities that they they took on the um, you know the sort of uh, um, plate of hand that they used in times to, to gain access to the suburbs uh, was a really important history something that, that hadn't uh, necessarily been um, sort of explicitly written about right right and, and so that's what I was I was trying to do in that in particularly in that part of the book yeah
1: right and you explained that as you as you're just mentioning getting at that nuance right of uh, this this um, you know if we were in you know, a distorted view of uh, again, metropolitan expansion in post-war America, which creates these, you know, white and black, you know, uh, d- dichotomies between urban and suburban space. Uh, you state that, uh, Mexican Americans, of course, you know, experienced, uh, the exclusion from the suburbs, but also, uh, you know, they pushed for their own inclusion. So that's much of what the central story of this book is, this book is right. Mexican Americanism itself, you know, um, provide examples of both, those that, you know, push for, you know, access to the suburbs and their way were able to, through their, you know, their drive and um, you know, various ways that you cover in the book, were able to get included into that suburban dream, uh, that part of the American dream and suburban home ownership, but also were excluded. Could you, you know, take that a bit further and, and give us some examples in, in what ways were do mixed Americans thereby then present this kind of liminal space in uh, suburban and you know post-war metropolitan history of being both excluded from that dream, but also at times gaining access to it.
0: Okay, sure. Yeah. And that was, you know, honestly that was one of the most difficult um, negotiations in, in researching and writing the book uh, was, was trying to balance that, that very sort of, um, I don't know, paradox really, right. Mm -hmm. That, you know, at the same time that, that there is very overt, uh, forms of discrimination, uh, particularly barring Mexican-Americans from purchasing homes, that they were still doing it, <laughs> right? right? And and that in these places, there were actually folks living there from, you know, who, who were, um, you know, sort of tied to the old colonias, the old uh, working-class uh, neighborhoods that were linked to, to the dying agricultural industry. Certainly by the 1950s, right, mm-hmm. and and so you know that that was a that was a challenge um, because you know for most of the literature focused either well almost overwhelmingly on sort of the discriminatory aspect of it, right? Exactly. And so right. I didn't really have a model to to sort of balance these these uh, very obvious contradictory. Um, you know development, mm-hmm. um, and so for instance, um, there's a incident that I write about in uh, I want to say it's the third chapter um, involving a um, a high school fight uh, between um, white students and ethnic Mexican students, and it happens in a at a high school Pioneer High School, which is just on the other side of. Um, what is now the six hundred five freeway uh, from from Pico Rivera? So it's sort of in this unincorporated uh, area of Whittier, and this happens in in nineteen sixty-two uh, thereabout. And it's to me, it was a reflection of of just that very contradiction that here you have, um, you know, this sort of growing number of Mexican Americans. Um, in these places, uh, their children are going to the schools. Right. And, and so in some capacity, you could read that as, as inclusion, right. That, you know, they're buying homes, they're, they're making a community here. Right. But then, then you have these sort of really, uh, sort of violent, uh, uh, I don't know, hostilities directed at, at these youths. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, you know, you have, and, 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 that's, you know, it's kind of a common story, something that we read in a lot of, in a lot of books, but um, one that I think helped me think through that contradiction that, you know, just because they became suburban and just because they were able to negotiate the color line in a particular kind of way, you know, really in a way that uh, most African-Americans and Asian-Americans couldn't at the time, mm-hmm. Um you know that didn't equal equality right no sir <laughs> um, and, and and so I think to me that was um you know that was just one of 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 a number of important incidents that that really brought that out uh, that contradictory position out.
1: yeah, you know it reminds me of my own you know family history uh in ways in that you know my my uh, my grandparents they uh, migrated to post-war LA uh, or LA right about the time of the war before and before the end of the mm-hmm. war uh my aunt uh, from Colorado that is and um both of them my this is on my father's side my grandmother and my grandfather uh were both college educated and I think it's like Adams State College I think that's what it is now I'm not sure what it was then but uh you know they came to LA and uh my grandmother and some of her sisters even worked you know in the aircraft industry is you know Rosie Riveters, uh, et cetera. Um, but anyways the, the point I'm making here is that they themselves uh, at one point when they had accumulated enough money to want to buy a house right they ran into these barriers right these racially restrictive covenants and or you know right, these racist real estate agents that you discussed that and you know, would refuse uh, to sell them a home outside of East LA and they almost packed up and went back to Colorado because uh, you know they just you know, we're, we're not gonna have it you know right we're not going to be denied that in some way um, you know, all the details, they were actually able to end up buying a home in the San Fernando Valley out in Northridge, which uh, in a neighborhood that had a, a lot of Jewish Americans, right? Um, and uh, so uh, my father, you know, when he tells me the story, and tells me about his own experience growing up as a valley boy uh, in, uh, you know, in the San Fernando Valley, Northridge, uh, has these aspects of, he tells me these stories of, of, of this kind of uh, you know, that liminal space of being included and excluded to where, uh, you know, yeah, they were there and they were middle class in so way, in, in, definitely ethnic Mexican middle class, right? Um, but, you know, they would get all these, what we now call microaggressions or just blatantly, you know, racist statements or, or treatment by school administrators and uh, sometimes from from other kids, uh, but uh, from my dad's telling, it was more from the school administrator's side of it uh, as he went through, you know, the schooling system out there that, you know, it's always kind of marked him, you know, as an outsider and something that that he couldn't get, right? Because he just, he knew nothing but growing up, you know, there in the valley. Um, And then at the same time, when he got older and uh, his older brother, who my uncle, became kind of more active in the Chicano movement, they were seen as outsiders from, you know, the East LA Chicano community. Right, because they were middle class valley kids, so you know they were neither really accepted right in the middle class suburb where they were, but they had a you know they had attained that portion of the, mix, the American dream, so called right, because they had the house and right. my uh, grandfather had a you know good uh, middle class job or a couple of them, and uh, my mother grandmother was able to teach as well, and but you know they're just kind of you know. They stuck in that middle space, you know, they, they, again, the East LA, uh, boys kind of just saw them as, uh, you know, pochos. I don't think they probably used that word back then, but, <laughs> you know, uh, sellouts or whatever it was. Uh, and, uh, they're just kind of stuck, caught in between. And, and so reading through your book kind of reminded me of that own part of my family history, as you, you see that, and this, you just make this point, right? That even gaining the house itself didn't mean full inclusion. It was, it was a limited, Right, and reserve type of inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, as you explained though, something that Mexican Americans had to force their way into, right? It created, it took a lot of resiliency to get a lot of no's, right, in, in trying to buy a home, um, whether it was in LA County or Orange County, wherever it was, to finally, you know, find the inroad, right? And even then, mm-hmm. it just, the, the path wasn't always, you know, uncertain and, and great.
0: So, In a lot of ways, the way in a lot of ways, navigating these racial boundaries, um, you know, opened up new opportunities and access to, um, you know, a growing number of Mexican Americans in the postwar period. At the same time, that it kind of left them open to uh, some of those things that you were just describing, right? The, you know, kind of questions of authenticity and, um, you know, of of of. the risk of, of looking like a pocho, right, compared to to folks who are maybe you know more real or more authentic, right, from Islos, right, and you know I, I think that that wasn't just um, you know a, a family experience for you. I think there was something going on generationally at the time as well that that even continued on to a certain extent. I, I think um, that that history, in unless unless we've done the work around suburbs is kind of lost, right? It just seems like a a novel sort of intra-group um, tension or even, even a microaggression within the group. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think there's something more there because there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of work all being done on, um, actually let me, let me walk that back. Uh, my friend Rosina has just written a great book about the Spanish language, right. And the politics of the Spanish language. Um, there's an aspect of that at work in the public schools of Los Angeles and certainly across the country, uh, particularly in the 1940s and fifties where, um, educators, um, school administrators, um, you know, denied, uh, the children, the ability to speak Spanish, um, through corporal punishment, through um, um, what's the word? Through uh, you know, sort of reprimand, uh, through public humiliation, right? And, and and so I think there was a whole generation of of uh, ethnic Mexicans who lost. Uh, the Spanish language as a result of the things that were happening on a broader scale. Right. And many of those folks are the ones who ended up moving to the suburbs. (laughs) Right. And so, so I think, you know, there are all these things that are sort of happening on a broader scale that start to come down on people's individual identities and, and sort of personal experiences that, um, you know, seem isolated, but I think are part of a much broader um, history
1: right and one that you point out is uh is is moving alongside right these two histories that is the the you know urban experience urban working class immigrant experience that at this moment in the 50s and 60s right it's paralleling right it's it's going on simultaneously as you have the development of the suburbs and uh, so these new experiences of ethnic Mexicans moving to suburbs and in the introduction, you um, you cite some figures here and I'm going to read them real quick. It says um, you say here. OK, so beyond these areas, that's from you know Watts, Compton, you start to talk about uh, other parts of Los Angeles, that ethnic Mexicans carved out places of their own across San Gabriel Valley in the 1950s and 1960s. Right. The decades associated with the height of suburban expansion. The numbers of Spanish surnamed residents in the San Gabriel Valley and southeast Los Angeles County suburbs increased from approximately twenty thousand to one hundred and eighty thousand. Right, and by comparison, uh, when we look to East Los Angeles, uh, that the population there, Spanish surnamed uh, population, more than doubled. Right, so roughly from forty-three thousand to ninety-one thousand. So you make the point here that uh, while East Los Angeles is turning into Uh, the largest, you know, Latino or or ethnic Mexican barrio in the United States, at the same time, the largest suburban Latino population is also occurring, right, in greater Los Angeles here in the United States. So these things, these two things, these two movements, and we've heard a lot, like you said, and we still need to do, as you're making a point, there's there's a lot of great work that continues to come out on various aspects, you know, of what's happening in barrios and colonias in the early to mid and even latter part throughout the 20th century, right? That's a, it's still much needed history. There's many stories that need to be told, but this part, which is not just, uh, you know, a suburban history, but as I think as you're connecting with, uh, Rosina's work, I also see them both as kind of like a middle-class experience history, right. Of ethnic Mexicans that we don't hear much of. So much of the experience has been, uh, narrated rightly so, right. And told through that immigrant and working class history that it's at times just seems odd uh, you know right when uh, or even exceptional when we read or hear about uh, Mexican Americans that, that uh, you know were middle class or um, you know that are buying homes in the suburbs but there's there's enough right the point is uh, a large amount as these statistics just you know clearly outlay that there's there's many many stories out there much more history to be uh, researched and written about to tell of this experience too, that developed alongside the one we know, you know, a good amount about.
0: Yeah. And and I, I think that part of the point that I was trying to make there, um, wasn't so much, uh, a criticism or critique of the field as much as really a recognition that, that there's still so much work left to be done in the field. Right. Uh, and that, um, you know, for, if, if we're doing, uh, metropolitan history well then we're looking at, at sort of the, the connections from urban barrios to to the suburbs or even to the exurbs right like going beyond and and you know I, I feel like not i feel I part of the work that i did was to show that uh, some of the same things that um, you know motivated and inspired folks in in places like royal heights or, or east la or lincoln heights we're also um, motivating factors in places like San Gabriel and Pico and, and Whittier, right? So, for instance, um, uh, I, I think of two examples here. Um, one is uh, something that we're all familiar with in Chicano history, and that's the story of the Zoot Zoot riots. Um, you know, so the the concerns and the anxieties around racialized violence, particularly, particularly in this incident, um, you know, are are well captured. I mean, I think we have a number of of, of good books, and and certainly the references of, of the Zoot suits um, can be found in in most twentieth uh, century urban histories. Um, but the the work that I started stumbling across, or the the research I started stumbling across with respect to the Zoot suit riots in the suburbs, um, I had never seen before. Right. So, for instance. Um, you know, when, once the uh, naval administration, uh, you know, sort of declares uh, the city of LA off limits, the zoot suit riots didn't necessarily stop because the city limits were 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 barred. But what about the county? <laughs> and 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 so I read about this in the first chapter that um, you know that sailors started going into places like El, El Monte, right? Uh, going through the the there and, and looking for suit suitors, um, you know, even as far as Monrovia out in the the eastern uh, San Gabriel Valley, and you know, so so there's a there's a connection here that doesn't stop just at city boundaries or or you know the the definition between urban and suburban, but this is a broader sort of metropolitan um, threat to Mexican Americans at that point in time. Um, you know, the other uh, the other sort of reference point is around uh, questions of Chicano identity and, and Chicano activism, right? Uh, you know, the '68 the walkouts in East side schools are, are iconic, right? They're they're canon. Uh, but Chicano students were walking out in in Rosemead and Pico too, right? And other places in the suburbs, and you know, I think that they're connected. Obviously, they're connected, uh, but we don't know what the local concerns were of those kids in the suburbs, right? Um, it's not—it's not LAUSD. They're look, we're looking at really localized school districts, and um, you know, I think there's still a lot of questions about about those local um, concerns. And I think you actually address some of those questions in the work that you're doing, DJ. Um, so I'm looking really looking forward to your book. Um To help us understand those kinds of things, right, because these sort of you know these institutions on a smaller scale probably have um you know a greater impact on a greater number of ethnic Mexicans over time than you know sort of the larger institutions like l a u s d or even right
1: well, I want to go with that metropolitan view that you're talking about too because that's something that uh I think that really comes across well in the book uh in that you're uh, it's not just a, a view of, of course, Mexicans that move to the suburbs, um, but that there are Mexicans, ethnic Mexicans, Mexican-Americans that have already lived there, some for generations, because L.A. expands into uh, what were formerly, uh, what were at the time, right, ethnic Mexican colonias or early Mexican settlements, right? Uh, so can you speak to a bit of the role, the, the very important role that uh, colonias, Mexican colonias play in the suburbanization of Los Angeles?
0: Well, they were, they were really the first ethnic Mexican suburbs, right? Um, you know, these are the places that are, are you know, sort of scattered across, um, you know, the landscape. And many of these places just, just by virtue of being there, <laughs> become part of uh, newer suburban developments, and so um, you know, at the first chapter, I focus on uh, a place called Hicks Camp in El Monte, and Hicks Camp has has found its way into um into the, the scholarship in a number of ways. You know, Matt, Matt Garcia writes about Hicks Camp, and um, you know, Daniel Morales, uh, who's um, at James Madison University right now has written a really great essay on Hicks Camp, um, and you know so there's there's some some knowledge around around this particular Colonia, and actually there's there's a, a really great uh, local historical society connected to the El Monte Varios and particularly around Hicks Camp, um, but I was looking at it um, at this particular place not as um sort of an isolated community as much as a community that was in the process of suburbanizing right that um many of the challenges that hicks camp residents began to experience were associated with metropolitan growth uh were associated with um you know hyper policing were associated with uh slum removal and eradication right and um and certainly the the um these sort of post-war imperatives around uh, land values and and land sales. So many of the, the large-scale um, agricultural industrialists began to sell off massive plots of land to residential and, and commercial developers. When when they did that, they were essentially uh, foreclosing the economic um, um, livelihoods of, of many colonial residents throughout the Southland. Uh, and that, that altered um, pretty dramatically the life ways of people who lived in the colonias. And so suburbs are, 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 are really sort of drastically changing these places. Um, <clears throat> and so Hicks Camp uh, begins to experience these, 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 uh, these pressures and these tensions, um, you know, from the Great Depression era all the way up through the 50s when it's, um, you know, for the most part, uh, rezoned for for a school and and for residential development, and half the community is essentially um, uh, uh, eradicated, right, bulldozed, <laughs> and so um, you know, and the other half kind of sticks around, and 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 this becomes true for most of the other colonias around around the Southland that that you know parts of them are are sort of uh, nipped and tucked away. Um, you, know, you know, a place like Jimtown, for example, uh, which isn't too far from there, is sort of on the border between Pico and Whittier, uh, is essentially cut in half to make way for the six hundred five freeway. You know, so these places kind of experience this this upheaval and and this destruction and removal, um, and smaller parts stick around, and people continue to live in those places, right? Uh, so when these new cities start to incorporate. You know, for instance, Pico Rivera incorporates in one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-eight as an independent municipality. They're incorporating w- already with a, about two or three really vibrant barrios because those were the old yes, right. And um, you know, so that whole ideal that these suburbs are like, you know, the exclusive domain of of you know affluent and happy um, white families is only partly true, right? There's there's also the this- um important uh, diversity in these places and, and one that's connected to um you know la uh as an agricultural region and la as a suburbanizing region
1: yeah you know and it connected to me it remind me of the uh kind of the earlier point you make that that ties to the this mexican-american and ethnic mexican experience as kind of being you know in ways paradigm shifting because it's a really a liminal experience right it's a process of you mentioned we were discussing earlier of inclusion and exclusion and here um you know the attainment of or the lack of attainment of um, suburban homeownership is an experience of migration and displacement right so you have colonial residents that are are being displaced as a result of the building of the suburbs as you just mentioned their homes are being bulldozed and they're being removed you have those that are able to somehow you know, figure out how to stay right um and some of it through their own advocacy and politics and then you have others that migrate there it, it kind of sounded to me a little bit uh, uh for the displacement aspect of it as kind of a form of you know proto gentrification you know we, we talk a lot about gentrification right now particularly in urban communities you, in LA, we're talking about it in Boyle Heights and Highland Park, Lincoln Heights, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but, you know, this experience of displacement to me, was just ringing so much, you know, like a gentrifying experience in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think in some ways it was, but I, I also feel like um, there hasn't been enough attention focused on the role of the, of the federal and state governments in suburban renewal. Right. So urban renewal is this, this process that we often associate with civic centers and, you know, in LA Chavez ravine is, is iconic, right. Um, there were like hundreds, if not thousands of Chavez ravines all across the country and they were placed in the suburbs. And, you know, I referenced earlier the, the construction of the 605 freeway, um, that cut through, um, you know, uh, jimtown flood ranch and um oh there was one just south of there um, it's dropping out of my head right now but it, it cut through three really old and and sort of prominent colonias right um that 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 was all about metropolitan development right that's those are federal dollars coming in um from the 56 highway act um you know so that's not necessarily gentrification that's 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 urban, well, suburban renewal, and, and and you know there there are other uh, historians who've who've made a similar point. Um, Andrew Highsmith, um, Nathan Connolly, have talked about suburban renewal, um, particularly with respect to African American experiences in in uh, Flint and Miami, respectively. Uh, but when we talk about urban renewal in in Chicano communities, Mexican American communities—we often, the usually the first place we look is Chavez Ravine, right? And um, I think that Chavez Ravine gave folks across uh, across Los Angeles a a reference point. I think it gave them a language to challenge uh, urban renewal, but I think it it was just um, the most prominent example of of these communities being carved up, and 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 so I. Hopefully, some smarter and and more energetic uh, historian will will go back and and recover all those those you know sort of uh, mini Chavez ravines throughout Los Angeles and Orange County, et cetera. Because uh, I think there's there's a bigger story there.
1: Definitely, definitely. Well, I also want to touch, uh, and I really appreciate your time. I want to get to uh, uh, two uh, just last quick questions. One regarding to the you know the book, and then the next one about your future work. But regarding this book, um, you know you make a you, you make the statement early on that, that this is very much a, a history about right the effect of suburban home ownership on Mexican American identity and identity and politics. Uh, can you d- discuss that a little bit? What type of effect you know did this have in um, you know that is the accessing you know a, a suburban home uh, mm-hmm. on you know the development of ethnic mexican identity and and even political you know mobilization sure um <clears throat> that's a great question uh
0: because just one of the points that i really do try to to make in the book um <clears throat> you know home ownership uh connotes investment right there's there's not only uh, it's a it's a material investment to be sure um you know there's questions of, ec- of building equity there's questions of building wealth right and part of the reason's why the denial of homeownership to people of color was so devastating is because it, it it sort of led to compounding structural inequalities right where folks who could buy into exclusive areas were basically guaranteed uh the um you know the compounding equity in their in their property right so you know 5 10 15 years later down the road they could sell that home for Maybe three or four times what they bought it for, and you know, so there's there's a certain um, you know ma- material effect with um, that that's tied to home ownership. But I think even beyond that, you know, sort of beyond the transactional, uh, and I think it was probably even more important for Mexican Americans, um, you know, there's there's an investment of of time and energy and resources in building a community. And you know, certainly home ownership wasn't uh, wasn't new to Mexican Americans in in you know sort of the post-war period in, in the suburbs. You know, folks had been buying homes in Boyle Heights, folks folks had been buying homes in in um, you know Moore Park, for example, right? And <clears throat> uh, but I think the you know sort of the thrust of Mexican American homeowners into these places um you know, sort of reoriented the communities in which they were going to invest their their time and energy. And you know, for for them, uh suburbs weren't devoid of a culture. They weren't devoid of a community. They were they were there and they were there to be to to um you know to be sort of nurtured and and um and developed. And I think for a lot of these folks who were moving into the suburbs, particularly the more middling um, to upperly mobile Mexican Americans um, they really applied their their position if you will to um, you know to seeing across the suburb for uh, for collective advancement right and I think I actually even use that term in the book somewhere that um, you know as they're they're sort of contributing to these suburban places both, uh, economically and politically um, they're also creating cultural ties with folks who had been living there for for decades right so those old colonias that were sort of cleaved off and remained um, became really important uh, cultural spaces for mexican americans across across the suburb um, the panaderias that were there <laughs> were there uh, because the colonial residents had, had created them um, and and so you know i think there was a you know that Suburban homeownership really sort of just shifted um, where these communities would would grow and, and develop, um, but it, it did so on a broader metropolitan scale. So folks aren't just connected to East L.A. anymore. They're connected across the metropolis. right? And so I think that, you know, that answers at least one part of the question, um, but I don't want to go on too long. Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly, yeah, no. And we want everybody to read the book so they can they can read the book to get the rest of it too. Uh well before we <laughs> before we close, I also wanted to uh, this I mean this is almost fresh off the press. It's been out for a little while, but definitely twenty eighteen publication. So I know it's it's uh it is very recent, um, which is great. Uh and it's also very accessible. I want to do that. It's just a great uh book. I just, you know, used it in a graduate class, but I can definitely see this being used very well in in undergraduate classes. And I'm sure a number of our uh, recent listeners also will be uh, interested those even not associated with academia uh, and, and uh, checking it out, but uh, tell us a bit, uh, what's, what's the next project on the horizon, on the horizon, what what else do we have uh, to look forward to from you?
0: Uh, Okay. Uh, And thanks. Thanks for the the words, DJ. I appreciate that. Um, So on the horizon, Um, there are a couple of questions that, that remained for me, I think coming out of the, coming out of the book phase, um, with respect to who some of these folks were and what they were doing on a broader scale. And, um, you know, I was, I was kind of deliberate about not, uh, not making this particular study transnational, I think partly because as a field, we've done a really good job of looking beyond, um, beyond the borders really to, to. To sort of reimagine uh, Latino identities, but we've done a less good job of looking beyond um, sort of geographic boundaries, local geographic boundaries, to to look at those identities. And so I was kind of deliberate about that. Um, but um, the question is there, and and it's always uh, kind of been there that that I wanted to pursue, and that was that was a really around transnational migrations and the ways that. You know, particularly after the 1960s, um, uh, Latino migrants and even Mexican-Americans in sort of transnational ways begin to remake these suburbs. And so one one project I'm working on right now um, is tied to the Sister City program, which was a part of uh, Eisenhower's People to People um, diplomacy program right uh, in 1956. And that's where cities sort of take on a, a uh, adopted city from some other country, if you will. It was like this this program to combat um, uh, communism, what have you. Uh, but it became a really popular program in the suburbs all across LA. It's kind of wild. If you go even now, if you look at these like suburban cities, they'll they'll, they'll have a sister cities link, and they'll tell you, "Oh, we have a sister city here in Japan, and one in Chile." Et cetera. Um, but I started to find a pretty interesting correlation with um, some of these suburbs that I write about in my book with, uh, you know, sister city programs in small pueblitos in, in Mexico. And in one instance, I found that one of, the, one of the Mexican-Americans who brokered a sister city program with the pueblo in, Me- in Mexico had family ties to that pueblo. So, uh, at the moment it's 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 a question that i'm I'm rounding out, but um, you know I'm really interested in in not just the migration of bodies, but the migration of ideas as well, and the ways that these suburbs are starting to become part of uh, a broader transnational discussion around identity and uh, in American public life. so so that's that's um, one thing I'm working on. I'm also really, really in the early stages of of working on um, some similar questions in San Antonio. So I'm, um, I'm, you know, I'm LA native, but I'm, I'm now a San Antonio resident, and um, I'm really energized by the, um, you know, by the city here, and and really the the potential for telling some really complicated and, and important histories, um, particularly in the 20th century, right? I mean, I mean, David. Um, David Montohano has written some some great stuff on the Chicano movement here. Um, you know, we have uh, some understanding of the origins of, of Lulac and those in that crowd. Uh, but I think for the most part, twentieth century um, Latino history in San Antonio is, is kind of wide open. And so, anybody listening, if you have a graduate student, you know, send them over here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a number of dissertation topics waiting to to be hatched. And um, at least at least one book project for a particular um, professor at UTSA. So um, yeah, so I'm I'm just getting started on some of that that material here.
1: Hey, well, thanks for sharing uh, that, and thanks again for your time and uh, taking the time to come and discuss your great new book. So again, very excited about it, and then encourage our listeners to to grab a copy of it and check it out. Great,
0: appreciate it, TJ. Thank you.